Hello and welcome to Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Jeff Hughes. And I'm Chris Elby. And we're at CanadianDimension.com. On the program today, I'll be having a conversation with Stephen Lendman, who is going to discuss the situation today in Haiti. And the talk continues as Jeff interviews James Petrus, world-renowned expert on Latin America and an author of several dozen books. He's going to be talking about the 10th anniversary of the Bolivarian Revolution. And we'll travel to Athens to speak to Professor Michael Spordalakis, and he's going to talk to us about the situation of deficit and civil unrest in Greece. That and much more. And now for the alert headlines for the week of February 18th, 2010. The 2010 Winter Olympics in Vancouver opened with the largest protest convergence in the history of the Games. Approximately 3,000 protesters of diverse backgrounds converged in Vancouver on February 12th, assembling for a peaceful yet vocal rally and march through the downtown streets to the steps of the BC Place, the site of the Games' opening ceremonies. Various protests are slated to continue throughout the Games, including a protest by the local anti-war organization against Olympic security, militarization and Canada's role in the occupations of Afghanistan and Haiti. A recent tally by the Vancouver Sun estimated that at least $8 billion will be spent on the Games and there are an estimated 15,000 homeless people in British Columbia. According to a report released by the University of British Columbia researchers last December, the number of homeless in Vancouver more than doubled in the years leading up to the Games. Eve Angler, author of Canada and Israel, Building Apartheid, which begins shipping next week, has asked his publisher Fernwood Publishing not to release the book to Chapters Indigo bookstores. This decision could harm sales, but the book calls on people to boycott Chapters Indigo and it would be inappropriate to sell it through that chain, said Angler. Canadians who care about Palestinian human rights should boycott Chapters Indigo until the chain's owners end their support for Israel's armed forces. According to the Coalition Against Israel Apartheid, the majority shareholders of Chapters and Indigo bookstores, Heather Reisman and Jerry Schwartz, established the HESEG Foundation for Lone Soldiers, which is a program to financially support young people who go to Israel to join the Israeli military. In January 2009, Haseg representatives handed out $160,000 worth of thank you gifts to Israeli soldiers participating in the attacks on Gaza. Thousands of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan have launched one of the largest military offenses of the eight-year war in an attempt to remove the Taliban from the city of Marja in Helmand province. The U.S. is coming under increasing criticism over the rise in civilian casualties during the operation. At least 19 civilians have been killed over the past three days in and around Marja. Ten of those killed were from the same family. The U.S. said the dead included nine civilians and three insurgents. Another five civilians were killed Monday in an airstrike in neighboring Kandahar province. Afghan President Hamid Karzai has called for an investigation into the deaths. Public institutions across Greece were brought to a standstill by a general strike on February 10th. The strike, which was called by the main public sector workers' union, confronts the economic policies of the newly elected socialist government that arrived in power in October 2009, with almost 45% of the votes and support from the unions. 
The government wants to recognize the accounts of the state in order for the European Union to grant the country economic assistance. Greece is one of the countries most battered by the economic crisis and one of the economies with the biggest debts in the EU. Greece is also the poorest country among the original members of the EU. A new report claims up to 100 million people in developing countries could go hungry as a result of European Union biofuel targets. EU countries have a target to generate 10% of transport fuel from renewable sources such as Jatropa, sugarcane and palm oil crops by 2020. Two-thirds of these crops are expected to be grown in developing countries. According to a recent report by ActionAid, these countries will lose large areas of farmland and food prices will soar as a result. The International Monetary Fund estimates that biofuels were responsible for up to 30% of the global food price spike in 2008. In science news, new research shows the world's oceans are becoming more acidic than at any time in the past 65 million years due to increasing levels of greenhouse gas emissions. Scientists at the University of Bristol in England say oceans are likely to become so acidic in coming centuries that they will become uninhabitable for vast swaths of life. Quebec doctors say it's time for the federal and provincial governments to decriminalize euthanasia. Gaetan Barrett, head of the province's Association of Medical Specialists, said at a National Assembly Committee hearing on the right to die with dignity that the province and Ottawa should come up with clear policies on when doctors can facilitate a patient's death. Barrett was among about 30 experts, including doctors and patient advocates, scheduled to address the Assembly Standing Committee on Health and Social Services on the issues of euthanasia and the right to die. Palestinian protesters at the West Bank Separation Wall have dressed and painted themselves as the native blue Navi characters from the Oscar-nominated blockbuster film Avatar. One Palestinian activist said, We are here, avatars and Navis, fighting against the sky people who are taking away our land and occupying our people. Here, as opposed to Hollywood, this is real. And those are the alert headlines for the week of February 18, 2010. And now, Around the Left for February 18th, 2010. On February the 20th, celebrate Black History Month with the Canadian Union for Public Employees Freedom Singers. There will be door prizes, spoken word, a Caribbean buffet, as well as calypso, reggae, sing-along, and labor music. This is a fundraising event for the Cuban International Music Festival. This event begins at 1 p.m. at 1482 Bathurst Street in Toronto. There is a suggested donation of $10. Two events are planned in Toronto to discuss the successes and challenges of the Bolivarian Revolution as it enters its second decade. On February 26, Federico Fuentes and Kiraz Yakanike, two well-known writers on Venezuela, will discuss the gains of the grassroots movements in Venezuela and the challenges they face. The forum begins at 7 p.m. in room 108 in Koffler House at the University of Toronto. The following day, February 27th, will be filled with workshops discussing the various challenges of solidarity in Venezuela. Registration is at 9.30 with the opening session beginning at 10 a.m. There is a suggested donation of $10. This day-long teaching will be held in room 2117 in the Sydney Smith Building at the University of Toronto. 
Since it was first launched in 2005, the International Israeli Apartheid Week has grown to become one of the most important global events in the Palestine Solidarity, Solidarity Calendar. Carleton University and the University of Ottawa are hosting events for the 6th International Israeli Apartheid Week. From March 1st to 6th, there will be speakers and public forums discussing the Palestinian Solidarity Movement. For more information, go to carleton.saia.ca. On March the 8th, the University of Winnipeg will host the first annual Afghanistan Film Festival and Mini Market. Tickets are $12 for adults, 7 for students, and are available at the University of Winnipeg, Red River College, University of Manitoba, and McNally Robinson. This festival begins at 4 p.m. And that's Around the Left for February 18th, 2010. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. Today we ask, what is going on in Haiti? A month after the devastating earthquake that shattered life and limb in that unfortunate country. To answer that question, Alert has contacted Stephen Lenman, Research Associate for the Center for Research on Globalization. He lives in Chicago, where we contacted him in his home. Welcome to Alert Radio, Stephen Lenman. Oh, I'm delighted to be on with you. Thank you for joining us. Last week, the Associated Press wrote that the health crisis in Haiti is entering a deadly new phase. What do you know about this, Stephen Lenman? Oh, I think it's going to be far deadlier than the Associated Press uh, can even imagine. And, and it's worse than that. This is something that is absolutely needless. I, I, I believe, because of what I know about uh, so many other things that uh, Washington has been involved with, around the world. You could go back in recent times. You could go back in past decades. I, I see something that has been engineered. An engineered disaster is, is the way I can describe it best. Uh, the, the, the major media reports uh, completely, well, do they miss the story or the, do they just ignore it? I, I see something that I call slow motion genocide in progress. First the quake, and I wrote an article suggesting nothing, but asking the question, was it natural or was it engineered? One thing that I do know, and and I wrote about it very, very explicitly, uh, we have the technology to to engineer quakes. We have a number of technologies that can do it, and the same technology can cause extreme weather, uh, forest fires, floods, tsunamis, uh, terrible, terrible things, It can cause grave harm. I don't know that the quake was engineered, but it is certainly possible. Well, the quake, uh, the official number is, is, the last number I saw was 230,000 dead. I think the number is more than that. Nobody really knows. Uh, Nobody will ever know. And and they're throwing away bodies like like garbage. Can you tell me about the uh, expected outbreak of various diseases because of the concentration of refugees? That's the biggest problem of all. Two big problems. One is starvation because aid is being obstructed. People are literally starving to death. The other is there are so many, there are hundreds of thousands of people with no shelter, no tents, no nothing, no sanitation. Uh, Haiti is a hot country. The rainy season begins uh, uh, in March, 
it lasts through about mid-year, it will be disastrous. You get all these people crowded together under the worst of conditions. Diseases are already breaking out, and there's already talk about small outbreaks of what looks to be something of epidemic proportions. Virtually everybody, there are some camps where virtually everybody in it has diarrhea, uh, I mean extreme diarrhea, diarrhea illness, but but the spread of disease is is, is extremely great. I think it will happen, and I suggest by the end of this year or into next year, anywhere from half a million to a million Asians will have died. You'll never hear a word about it in the major media. Last week, too, new protests broke out in Port-au-Prince demanding water, food, and tents for shelter and complaining about the inadequate response of the Haitian government. What is holding up the distribution of aid? A month later, where is all the money and materials that, is, that are pouring into the country? Where is it all going? Well, what's holding it up is U.S. policy. I believe U.S. policy is to commit genocide in Haiti. I'm not kidding. We did it in Iraq. Uh, we, did, we did it without even being at war in the 1990s. We certainly have done it since the 2003 war. We did it on a mini-scale in the Gulf War in 1991. We're doing it right now in Afghanistan. Uh, uh, the, Afghanistan the mission in Afghanistan right now isn't killing uh, militant fighters. It's killing civilians. The fighters have, have kind of disappeared into the woodwork, and, 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 and the so-called successful campaign is murdering civilians. Uh, since 2001, genocide has gone on in, in Afghanistan. I think that's what's planned from in Haiti. Uh, uh, 80, 90 percent of them are deeply impoverished. We don't need them all. We want a certain number for, for, for cheap near slave labor. There are 9 million Haitians. 9 million Haitians aren't needed. Half that number would be just fine. I don't know that they want to murder 4 million but I think they want to get rid of as many as they can. You, you can't bomb them. You can't shoot them down. But you can starve them to death. You can cram them in, in, in quarters on the streets with no sanitation and let diseases spread, and that will do the job just nicely for you. Well, Stephen Lenman, we, we do know that there are, are massive amounts of food and water and, uh, and other materials in Haiti. What's happening to it? Oh, again, obstructed. There also has been, uh, the, in my article, it was close to $600 million in donor aid already received, 99% of the appeals goal. Uh, that, that was as of last weekend. Oh, I'm certain it's, it's over 100% of the appeals goal. And the question I asked in my article uh, was, uh, what's happened to this money? Uh, that's enough money to buy loads of aid, all kinds of aid, and the money keeps pouring in. What's being done with it? I think it's been stolen. The same thing happened after the Asian tsunami a few years ago. Over a billion in donor aid was collected. The people got nothing. They, 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 they moved them forcibly from the areas they wanted for development. They're still, they still haven't been helped. They're still living under adverse conditions. Years later, this is the plan for Haiti. Plus, plus disease to get rid of as many as possible. Deliberate, willful obstruction. This is, these are crimes. Who, who stole the money? Well, uh, developers wanted for development, and the NGO community, uh, non-government organizations, most of them are criminal. They're allied with the government. They do nothing to help poor people. They go in under the guise of providing humanitarian care, 
and they don't. They're there for their own enrichment, and they're well paid for doing it, plus, you know, all they can grab on the side. Uh, nobody should make a contribution to an NGO unless you know exactly who it is, what they're doing, and you're pretty damn sure that what they're going to do is the right thing. Still, you'll probably be wrong. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're speaking to Stephen Lendman. He is the research chair at the Center for Research on Globalization. Now, our Prime Minister here in Canada, Stephen Harper, has just pledged that our government will spend $500 million putting up temporary buildings for the Haitian government and its civil, civil servants. Will that help? Can I be blunt? Please. Just like my president, the previous one and the present one, your prime minister is a liar. Whatever money will be spent will not be for Haitian people. It'll be for elitist development. It'll be for profit. 100% of it. Not one dime will go to helping Haitian people. Oh, I shouldn't say not one dime. Uh, There may be a few crumbs here and there to make it look like some humanitarian uh, help is being delivered. But but it, it is meaningless. We have at least three million people affected by this quake. Uh, what, 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 what's a few? What's a few thousand dollars here? A few thousand dollars there? What can that possibly do to help three million people? The plan is, don't help them, not help them. That's the problem. So Stephen Harper is a liar. Obama is a liar, and they're conspiratorially allied along with France. Canada has has a commercial interest in Haiti, mostly in the north mining. The plan is to balkanize the country, divide it, divide it up between France, uh, uh, Canada, and the U.S. The U.S., yes, of course, getting the lion's share, especially in the South, where I think most of the oil is. Haiti is an oil-rich country. Why are we there? Why are the Marines and paratroopers there? Not to help Haitians. Uh, Haiti is, is a prize. It is a prize. Uh, it is believed to be extremely oil-rich, offshore, deep water. Why hasn't it been developed up to now? They haven't needed it. They haven't talked about it. It's been known about for decades. Stephen Lendman, we have one minute left here on Alert Radio. Your final thoughts. My final thoughts are that people need to know about this disaster that's going on right now, a needless disaster, because bad government, criminal government, is making it happen. And three countries are mainly responsible. Mine the most by far, Canada and France. And the rest of the world community just yawns and does nothing. And people are deceived to think if they send $10, $20, they're going to do some good. Keep your money in your pocket and send nothing. Because chances are, are probably 100 to 1, it'll be stolen and never done a thing for poor Haitians. They need your help. And the other thing is spread the word and let other people know about this massive crime being committed under the guise of humanitarian aid. Thank you, Stephen Lendman. Your latest article on Haiti, Haiti Open for Business, can be found on the Canadian Dimension website under CD Links. Thank you for joining us on Alert Radio. Oh, my pleasure. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're at CanadianDimension.com, and I'm Jeff Hughes. 
The Eurogroup meeting of European finance ministers in Brussels has just renewed calls for sharp cuts in the social spending in Greece as tensions rose between the major powers over whether to fund a bailout of the debt-stricken country. Underlying these tensions is widespread fear of mass opposition in the working class. We have on the phone from his home in Athens, Professor Michael Sportalakis. Professor Sportalakis lived for lived for a time in Canada while earning his PhD in political science. Welcome to Alert Radio, Professor Michael Sportalakis. Hello from Athens. Thank you for joining us. Can you explain to our listeners across the country why so much attention is being focused on Greece's economic situation? European commentators are calling it a fiscal mess that could threaten the entire eurozone if it is not fixed. Is it a mess? And if so, how did it get that way? Well, uh, to tell you the truth, uh, the mess, the economic mess, uh, is not felt in the country uh, yet. We got in, into this way uh, because of, uh, as you know, because of the debt. But bef- behind the uh, Greek debt is the, the deficit. Uh, we, we run deficit budgets for a, quite a few years. And behind this is uh, our, our lack of planning of economic development. And overall, the picture is, in in Europe is uh, that the economic and monetary union, uh, the notorious EMU, is missing the E in of the equation. It's monetary union, but it's not an economic union. Now, why Greece is in the center of all this? It's uh, it's a mystery. It has to do with. Uh, the uh, struggle between uh, the dollar and the euro, and uh, it has to do with uh, internal quarrels in the European Union between the rich North and the not-so-rich or not-so-disciplined South, the uh, infamous pigs, as you probably know. Is Greece so much worse than Spain, Portugal, and Italy? We understand that Spain has an official unemployment rate of 18%. No, actually, it's, it's not. And the economic situation of a, in, uh, in Greece, the bad fiscal situation of, uh, of the country, is not going to affect uh, the, the status of, uh, of uh, euro. However, I think that uh, uh, Greece has been picked up, uh, out because of its, uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a case study, as a guinea pig to apply very harsh uh, measures. Um, the, uh, the, ra- the, the, the rate of growth is negative in uh, in Germany, uh, say six percent. In Spain, is about four or five percent negative gr- uh, rate of growth. In Greece, is uh, negative rate of growth of one percent, and the unemployment in, in Greece is the official rate is uh, a little under eleven percent, as compared to Spain, which is eighteen, to Portugal, which is pretty high, Italy, and so on and so forth. So the situation in Greece is not much worse uh, 
but it's a smaller country uh, with uh, uh, not a very, uh, how should I say, efficient and uh, trustworthy government to fight the uh, for a different road, a different answers to the fiscal crisis of uh, of the country. This is Alert Radio. We're at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes, and we're speaking to Professor Michael Spordalakis. We've read one account that the Greek, Greek government faces two fundamental choices. The first choice is to bring down the deficit by a massive cut in government spending and a drastic cut in wages and social benefits. Without that, the European powers are threatening that they will not bail out Greece with temporary loans. The second choice is an exit from the European Union altogether and from the euro, which would enable it to depreciate a new Greek national currency and drive up exports. Now, both of these are very drastic options. Do you agree that these are two of the fundamental choices facing Greece? Yeah, I would agree with you that these are the two basic choices the country has. The the last one, is, to me, is out of the question. It will take a long time to explain why. The first, uh, the first option is, uh, in other words, staying within the European Union, within the uh, Economic and Monetary uh, uh, Union, is uh, is what uh, how the country should go. However, um, these measures can be done in a different way than the government is trying to uh, to do them. Uh, for example, uh, instead of going into uh, the, the wage cuts in the public sector, uh, they can issue uh, public uh, bonds and uh, pay wage earners with this, uh, pay uh, the wage earners benefits with uh, public bonds or they they can uh, take radical measure in in terms of broadening the tax base in in the country where uh, the huge strata of self-employed can can finally pay their dues in the country they don't do that and the final point on this one uh, they could uh, uh, take initiatives. The government can take initiatives. For the moment, only the left, the, the, the left is taking this initiative to uh, uh, to establish some kind of solidarity with other countries of the South: Portugal, Italy, uh, Spain, and Ireland, in in order to fight these uh, new measures uh, imposed by the Commission. Speaking of the protests, Greek public sector workers mounted a two-day strike last week. A general strike by the public and private sector workers is scheduled for next week, February 24th. What do you anticipate will happen on the 24th, and will it be followed by more strikes and protests in the weeks to follow? Michael Spardalakis. It's uh, very difficult to predict uh, what is uh, going to happen in the long run. On the 24th, we're going to have a, a, a rally uh, downtown Athens, and probably in major cities. Uh, it's going to be a bit 
larger than uh, last week, uh, but one has to keep in mind that uh, the trade union is uh, uh, very fragmented, and uh, more to the point is that its leadership is uh, part of the of the uh, of the governing party, and so they're not going to go that far in protesting. Um, so, uh, so as far as other kind of protests, uh, one has to see the the measure, the, the introduction of the measures, and uh, see how the people will react. Because, as I said before, for the moment, we don't, we we haven't felt uh, the crisis. We we haven't felt the measures are imposed into the country by the Commission. One final question for you. What is your guess as to how this will be resolved? Oh, well, this is a wild guess. It has to be a wild guess. Uh, To me, I think uh, we're going to see a wide restructuring of the European Union and uh, probably we we might witness an entire restructuring of the Greek political scene. Uh, I uh, dare to predict uh, that uh, the Greek political scene is not going to look the same, uh, say, in uh, in a year's time period. No. Can you? Uh, we actually have just a little bit longer for you to explain that for us, please. Uh, yeah, I I think uh, the the contradictions of uh, of the of uh, the measures and the reactions even within the governing party are going to be uh, are going to be uh, felt quite soon. Uh, the left is trying to put and uh, is put its act together, and I do not mean the the uh, the communist party but the uh, the radical um uh, coalition of of the left is trying to put its act together and we're going to have the rise of uh, nationalists from the ultra right uh, so i predict a lot of uh, um uh, a lot of uh, restructuring there are a lot of people from uh, the right, from uh, the governing party, and uh, even from the ultra-right party, who are calling for an all-party government. So these pressures um, uh, and, and the rising of unemployment and on inequalities and uh, the, the problems which are going to be caused by these measures are going uh, are bound to to make to to have major uh, political uh, changes and transformations. Professor Michael Spordalakis, thank you very much for joining us today from your home in Athens, Greece. This is Alert Radio, and we appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you.
This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're at CanadianDimension.com, and I'm Jeff Hughes. On February 2nd, 1999, Hugo Chavez was sworn in as president after receiving 56% of the vote. Chavez declared that date a work-free day across the country so that people and workers could attend the celebration of the, the 10th anniversary of what he called the Bolivarian Revolution. According to official accounts, over 100,000 did attend. How are we to evaluate the Bolivarian Revolution on this, its 10th anniversary? To help us do that, we have contacted Professor James Petrus, well a well-known expert on Latin America and author of several dozen books and countless articles on the subject. Jim is a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective, and his latest book, Global Depression and Regional Wars, was published in 2009 by Clarity Press. We contacted him in his home in Binghamton, New York. Welcome once again to Alert Radio, Jim Petrus. Uh, thank you for the invitation. I always look forward to being on alert because I know it reaches a select audience of people interested in social and political change. Well, thank you. So how do you evaluate the Bolivarian Revolution, Jim? First off, what difference has it made to the material lives of the poor? It's made a very substantial impact in uh, opening the door to... Um, multiplicity of health clinics in uh, popular neighborhoods which previously didn't exist so that 95 percent of the urban poor now have access to free medical care dentistry optometrists etc the second thing is he has opened up uh, supermarkets public supermarkets that sell food at subsidized prices about 40 percent off what the uh, normal super supermarket prices. Thirdly, he's uh, opened up over 15 new universities that have opened admissions. So for the first time, uh, working class kids and uh, uh, children of the poor have access to higher education. Uh, he's made a major impact in lowering uh, poverty from about 39% to under 10%. Uh, he's launched a very big literacy campaign that's uh, pretty much eliminated illiteracy. And uh, I think we, equally important, uh, President Chavez has shown that neoliberalism is not the only system around. He's introduced uh, public ownership, mixed companies, state intervention. Uh, he's done a number of uh, uh, policies which show that a mixed economy is still a very viable uh, possibility today in, in a globalized uh, world. And can you comment now on the difference that uh, the Bolivarian Revolution has made to the political life of Venezuela these last 10 years? Well, he's, uh, it's the biggest impact is that uh, he's encouraged uh, popular participation through the formation of uh, community councils. Uh, there are large numbers, thousands of uh, councils organized on the neighborhood level that play an active role in, in terms of uh, making policies that affect their everyday lives. The second thing uh, he's done is uh, make it abundantly clear in Venezuela and, and throughout Latin America that uh, the U.S. can no longer uh, throw its weight around and dictate policy. He's uh, been in the forefront of opposition to the war on terrorism. 
Bush and Obama's interventionism around uh, the wars in the Middle East. Uh, Chavez has demonstrated that uh, the United States cannot dictate uh, free trade policy in Latin America. He led the fight and very successfully. Uh, he has also been uh, instrumental in creating a new integration organization that doesn't rely on uh, on U.S. funding or U.S. Uh, dictates. The ALBA, the uh, Latin American Free Trade Agreement, uh, under the auspices of Latin American countries. In other words, he has marked out a path of independent foreign policy, which has been picked up by many Latin American countries today. How about on a global perspective, uh, when we talk about world socialism, how has Venezuela uh, impacted that? Well, Venezuela has raised the issue of public ownership. Uh, A number of factories that were nationalized now have uh, worker-managed management uh, structures, uh, he's also uh, opened up the doors to a uh, support for uh, liberation movements in the world. Uh, I, I think it's the first steps towards socialism rather than marking out a, uh, a whole break with capitalism. I think that's uh, for the future. But he's raised uh, a great deal of consciousness about the relevance of socialist ideas, socialist critiques, uh, social ownership, social property, and uh, I think the fact that uh, that that has been uh, put on the uh, front burner now by a president in, in an important Latin American country uh, has legitimated the uh, whole uh, socialist uh, perspective, particularly in the face of the collapse of capitalism in the recent uh, and ongoing crisis that people uh, now are taking serious the. Uh, a socialist economy as an alternative to crisis-ridden uh, capitalism, and Chavez is demonstrating that uh, if indeed there is a world economic crisis, uh, you can uh, organize uh, alternatives to it. This is Alert Radio for people who want to change the world. We're at CanadianDimension.com. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm speaking to Jim Petrus, Canadian Dimension Collective member and author of Global Depression and Regional Wars, published in 2009. Now, we know that you're not a Pollyanna, Jim Petrus. I'm going to give you a chance now to tell us some of your criticisms of the Bolivarian Revolution. It's a work in progress, after all. So, um, how much of the Venezuelan co- first, how much of the Venezuelan economy has been taken into public ownership? Well, I would uh, I would say this that it's uh, it greatly um, uh, pushed toward a mixed economy. The banking system uh, is mixed: the public banks and private banks. Uh, the uh, manufacturing sector is largely uh, private, but there are significant industries: uh, steel, aluminum, telecoms, that are publicly owned. Uh, the the big problem is. Uh, two, that uh, the public sector is not administered by the workers and the producers. There is an overhang of uh, senior executives uh, that have not really functioned in a very entrepreneurial way with uh, a great lag in efficiency and a certain degree of corruption. So there really needs to be a reevaluation of the uh, structures of the public sector. 
the second thing is within the government there is um, a certain degree of corruption and uh, lackness, uh, laxity in implementing a lot of the uh, measures. So that what what's on the books many times in terms of health educational policies uh, there is a, a gap between uh, stated goals and the implementation. Now, this is particularly the case in public housing where the government sets uh, goals of 50,000 houses a year and only 10 or 15,000 are actually constructed. Second big issue is inflation and the government has to tackle that problem. Uh, they're printing money, productivity hasn't been increasing and uh, demand because of added income has uh, exceeded uh, supply. Prices have been going up at about 25% a year, and uh, that's affecting some of the popular classes that don't have indexed uh, salaries and wages. And the third thing that's a very big concern is the, uh, the uh, incompetence of the uh, 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 Ministry of Interior and developing programs to cut down on crime. Crime is soaring in Venezuela, and uh, you need to get more community involvement. You need to get uh, much more uh, security measures on the ground combined with social programs and uh, local uh, committees of uh, security committees in, in the neighborhoods, following the, the level of criminality that's still floating around. And some of it comes from over the border. Jim, we uh, have Columbia to actually... has a great many paramilitary groups which slip across the border, engage in uh, drug and other illicit activities. So what is the next step of the Bolivarian Revolution? We've only got a minute left, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but uh, where do we go from here? Well, I think one of the things the government has to put uh, a lot more uh, effort into increasing productivity, it has to move with a greater degree of resolution in uh, investing in uh, public security. It has to uh, clean up the act of many of its uh, officials. It has to allow for more gra grassroots selection of elected officials and ultimately uh, hold their uh, uh, public officials to account. There has to be a great, a great deal more uh, uh, accountability of the uh, of people. Many people got on the bandwagon who uh, do not have the same politics as President Chavez. So he's dealing with a, uh, a problematical uh, administration, and uh, he needs to sit down with the uh, mass organizations and work out a plan where uh, efficiency combines with democracy to counter bureaucracy. Jim Petrus, Canadian, Canadian Dimension Collective Canadian member, Dimension and Collective author member and Global author Depression of Global and Regional Depression. Wars, I want to thank you for joining us today on Alert Radio. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Jim. This is Music as a Weapon, and today's show is sort of about after the war. Here's a great song written by the late Steve Goodman called Penny Evans. Oh, my name is... 
is penny heavens and my age is twenty-one. A young widow in the war that's been fought in Vietnam. And I have two infant daughters and I do the best I can. Now they say the war is over, but I think it's just begun. And I remember I was seventeen on the day I met young Bill at his father's grand piano. Heart and soul, and I only knew the left hand part, and he the right so well. He's the only boy I slept with, and the only one I will. It was first we had a baby girl, and we had two good years. It was next the one a notice came, and we parted without tears. It was nine months from our last good night. Our second babe appears. Then it's ten months and a telegram confirming all our fears. And now every month I get a check from an army bureaucrat. And it's every month I tear it up, and I mail the damn thing back. Do you think that makes it all right? Do you think I'd fall for that? You can keep your bloody money. Sure won't bring my Billy back. I never cared for politics, speeches I don't understand. Likewise, never took no charity from any living man. But tonight. There's fifty thousand gone in that unhappy land, and fifty thousand heart and souls being played with just one hand. Oh, my name is Penny Evans, and I've just gone twenty-one. A young widow in the war that's been fought in Vietnam, and I have two infant daughters.
God, I have no sons. Now they say the war is over, but I think it's just begun. That was Sarah Basha singing Steve Goodman's Penny Evans. A couple days ago, I got an email from some friends of mine in Kansas City, and it was a song that they'd put together about what's currently going on in terms of the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, and I was some impressed by this, and so I decided to play it for you today. Here's a song called Sins of the Father. Another Humvee hits an IED And therewith the damage it did Another young soldier who can't hold a lover Or play patty cake with a kid The quick action team gets him out of the field Back to the States to get buried or healed The sins of the father live on in the sun and they're still coming back from the war They fly in at night under pale moonlight Where the doctors are all standing by In a preemptive mood to patch up a wound And salvage another GI Another of ours that won't dance anymore Another young soldier come back from the war Sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war The Pentagon brief never talks about grief Or the soldier come back from the war Or what he might need while he's at Walter Reed Or the reason they sent him there for Another young soldier got shot up and screwed what will you pay for a barrel of crude? The sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war Now time has a way of slipping away To a place where the memories fade Except for the few that still pass in review Or march at the veterans parade Another old soldier still there in the past Watching the flag going by at half-mast The sins of the father live on in the sun And they're still coming back from the war The sins of the father live on in the sun The sins of the father live on in the sun the sins of the father live on in the sun, and they're still coming back from the war. When I came back from Lohang Prabang, I didn't have a thing where my balls used to hang, but I had a wooden medal and a finer rank. Now I'm a fucking hero. Mourn your dead land of the free. If you want to be a hero, follow me. Mourn your dead land of the free. If you want to be a hero, follow me. And now the boys all envy me. I fought for Christian democracy with nothing but air where my balls used to be. 
Now I'm a fucking hero. Mourn your dead land of the free. If you wanna be a hero, follow me. Mourn your dead land of the free. If you wanna be a hero, follow me. Let one and twenty cannon thunder into the bloody wild blue yonder for a patriotic ball is wonder. Now I'm a fucking hero. Mourn your dead land of the free. If you wanna be a hero, follow me. Mourn your dead land of the free. You wanna be a hero, follow me. In Lawangpa Bang, there is a spot where the corpses of your brothers rot. And every corpse is a patriot. Every corpse is a hero. Mourn your dead land of the free. If you wanna be a hero, follow me. Mourn your dead land of the free. If you wanna be a hero, follow me. That was the late, great Dave Von Ronk singing Luang Prabang, and before that, Bob and Diane Sukio from Kansas City singing Sins of the Father. James Keelahan is a, is a pretty amazing writer who originally is from Alberta, now lives in Manitoba, and about 10 years ago, the CBC gave him a commission to write six songs about Canada, and the, the interesting song he wrote about British Columbia was about the dispossession of the Japanese uh, in World War II and, and what happened to them, and he wrote the most hopeful song. Here's James Keelahan with Kiri's Piano. Of all of Kirito's joys, the thing she loved the best was to play her prized piano when the sun had gone to rest. I used to hear the notes drift down along the silent water as Kiri played the notes and scales for her dear sons and daughters. Now me, I played piano, but not as good as Kiri. She went in for that long-haired stuff, but my, she played it pretty. The old piano had a tone that set my heart to aching. It always sounded sweetest, though, and it was Curie playing. In December when the seventh fleet was turned to smoke and ashes The order came to confiscate their fishing boats and caches And Kiri's husband forced to go and work in labor camps And Kiri left alone to fend and hold the fort as best she can but the music did not drift as often From up the cove at Curie's house And when it did it sounded haunted Played with worry, played with doubt For Curie knew that soon she too Would be compelled to leave And the old upright would stay behind And Curie she would grieve 
bus with stoic internees. The crime that they were guilty of was that they were not like me. And if I was ashamed, I didn't know it at the time. They were flotsam on the wave of war. They were no friends of mine. And I went up to Kiri's house to tag all their belongings and set them out for auctioneers who'd claim them in the morning. One piece that I thought I'd keep and hold back for myself. Was that haunting ivory upright that Kiri played so well? But Kiri had not left it there for me to take his plunder. She rolled it down onto the dock. On into the harbor, the old upright in strangers' hands was a thought she couldn't bear. So she consigned it to the sea to settle the affair. And so many years have come and gone since Kiri's relocation. Look back now upon that time with shame and resignation. For Kiri knew what I did not—that if we must be free, then sometimes we must sacrifice to gain our dignity. Yes, Kiri knew what I did not—that if we must be free. Then sometimes we must sacrifice to gain our dignity. That was James Keelahan with Kiri's piano. That's it for this week, folks. See you later. And that is Alert Radio for February 18th, 2010. I'm Jeff Hughes, and I'm Chris Alby, and we hope that you'll be able to join us again next week. See you then. Our thanks, as usual, to executive producer and publisher of Canadian Dimension Magazine, Saigonic, and Tommy Allen, senior technical producer. Our intern technician, Selina Serbinuk. Our alert headline writer Chris Webb. Around the left in seven days comes to us from Ben Wood. And of course, Mitch Bedolik with "Music Is the Weapon." Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension Magazine, and you can hear it in 12 cities across the country in community and campus radio stations. You can also log on to rabble.ca or canadiandimension.com. And if you'd like to send us your ideas, comments, or suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at alert at canadiandimension.com. We'd like to remind Alert listeners that the current issue of Canadian Dimension magazines is now on newsstands. For a glimpse of the articles and content, check out canadiandimension.com.